All right, do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, we're wrapping up our series, going through the life of Abraham and watching him as he walked by faith in uncertain times, and so we're kind of getting to the pinnacle of the story now and maybe the most uh, severe of the events in his life, and uh, we're trying to learn from him. So Genesis chapter 22, we're going to read verses 1 to 14. I will pray, and then we'll, we'll get to work. Starting in verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkeys while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The, fi the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have, withheld from, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there... In the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now as we've opened our word, our Bibles, and we're opening our hearts, would you please speak to us? Would you please help us to hear from you? And would you help us, Lord, to understand what it is that you require from us and how you provide for us? And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, for centuries, people have been trying to understand this story. It is a beautiful story. It is a confusing story. It is a in some cases, infuriating story as you look at the events unfold and you wonder what on earth is going on here and what does it mean for us today. Now, I don't pretend to assume that I'm going to untangle everything for you, but I think it's helpful to look at this uh, really under three different themes that emerge. And so we'll, do, uh, we'll look at the trial that God walks Abraham into, the sacrifice that he requests from him, and finally, the provision that God himself offers. So the trial shows up very early on. It's the testing of the Lord. This is something that God does. He takes his people and he tests them. 
in order to show what's really going on on the interior. Look at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. God takes his people and he brings them through trials and he does this intentionally. He does it in order to reveal what's really going on on the inside. It happens over and over and over again throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 8 is a good place to uh, look at, to think through the testing of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's later on in the storyline, but Moses is speaking and he says to the people of God, remember how the Lord led you through the wilderness these 40 years. He did this in order to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. There's a testing feature that the Lord uses circumstances and difficulties and trials, and he brings people through those, those, those things in order to prove what's going on on the interior. In the New Testament, it shows up in multiple places, 1 Peter chapter 1, James chapter 1. It talks about this testing that God brings his people through so that they might know what's really going on. Now, here's the reason why we need that. We are overly confident in ourselves. We think that we're more than we're not. So we can make these bold confessions, God, I love you, I serve you, I obey you, I do what you want from me. But when we go through a test, we find out whether or not that's really true. Think about uh, Peter. What did Peter say on the eve of the arrest of Jesus? He said, look, I will never disown you. I will never, I, even if I have to die. He's making all these bold assertions about his faith and his commitment and all these different things. But what happens when Jesus is arrested? He disowns him three times. He denies even knowing him. And so we need that testing because we're overly confident in our spirituality. We think, I've got everything dialed in. I've got everything figured out. But when we go through a trial, it actually reveals the true nature of what's going on inside of us. So this testing is an important feature, and it is a, it's a good thing for us. When God is testing us, it's because he loves us. It's because he wants us to grow and to develop as followers of him. Well, the testing involves a call. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, God said to Abraham, Abraham, and he replies, here I am. And then he begins to call him to make a sacrifice. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Now, we've been traveling with Abraham for weeks now, and uh, that's helpful because it, sometimes it helps for us to think through the themes that keep reemerging. There are some similarities that have been traveling through all of these different narratives. One of the things that I notice here is the similarity between the initial call. In Genesis chapter 12, what did God say to Abraham? Abraham, I want you to leave your father, your mother, your household, your country, and go to a place that I'll show you. He's asking Abraham to take a step of faith without the details. I want you to go do something, and I'll tell you about it when we get there. But that requires an initial step of faith and obedience without all the details. See, Abraham here is being told, I want you to go to the region of Moriah. I want you to sacrifice your son there on a mountain I will show you. You don't have all the details. You don't know how this is going to play out. You don't know how this is going to end, but I'm, I'm asking you to take a step of faith, believing in me, and when we get there, you'll know. 
That's how God deals with Abraham in the testing period. God is asking him to take a significant step of faith. And Abraham has a faith that believes in this. In fact, in Hebrews, uh, we'll, we'll lean on Hebrews a few times today. In Hebrews 11, we're told that Abraham was willing to, to step out in faith and to live as a stranger in a foreign land and to live in tents because he was believing in God and looking forward to a city whose foundation and builder is God himself. There's a reality about Abraham where he says, look, I don't know all the details, but I trust in God, and I'm actually looking forward to something that God's going to do. I'm going to live in residence with God himself. I'm going to live in God's city that is unshakable. Its foundation, its architect is God himself. God tests us, and often he's saying, will you please take a step forward, and you don't know how this is going to unfold, but I want you to do this trusting in me. Let me share with you how this has played out in my own life. Ten years ago, uh, Ash and I were recently married, and she was working in Chicago. She got her nursing license and moved into the city, and uh, her first uh, job was a nursing job in Chicago. And so during our uh, dating and engagement and even in our first year of marriage, she was working in the city of Chicago. And we rented a place in Cherry Valley because I was the youth pastor at the Beloit campus. And so we were both, you know, commuting. She was obviously commuting much further than I was. But she would head into the city and work three 12-hour shifts in a row. And um, she'd stay with her sister and work those shifts and then come back home. But we realized really quick that this is not going to work long range. This is not a good plan indefinitely. And so we began to ask God, what, is, what, should we, what should we do here? What adjustments do we need to make? And I'll make this, uh, I'll oversimplify a very complex season of our lives, but um, basically we felt like we had two options. One was I could leave my post as a youth pastor and go into the city where Ash was making incredible money as a nurse in there. And I could figure that out when, when we got there. We could, uh, you know, I could just make ends meet, or maybe there's a, a church in there. Uh, I interviewed at a church, and maybe there's an opportunity there. So that was one option, and that seemed to make a lot of sense because she was the breadwinner, and I was not. They, they, uh, Central got me right after I was leading an action sports ministry, and I was living in an RV. And so they were like, we don't have to pay this dude anything. <laughs> If he, gets a, if he gets a check every week, no matter what the number is on there, he's going to be excited. So we were looking at this option, and it's like, well, we could go in that direction to the second city and, and uh, look for what God is doing there. The other option would be Ash resigns from her post in Chicago and comes this way. And that doesn't actually make a lot of sense on paper. It doesn't seem to stack up. It's not a clear-cut decision, but as we prayed about it, we felt like God was saying, commit to here. Commit to here. And we decided, okay, we're going to take a step of faith here. And when we look at the pros and cons, there's not a lot of pros that are landing on this option, but God is moving us in this direction. And so we took that, that step of faith, not knowing the details, and God answered prayers in incredible ways. Ash was able to get a position in Rockford working days instead of nights. It's a coveted position, the daytime shift. And uh, 
the elders, we had proposed a, a raise for me from you know, RV living to a, a real paycheck, and they agreed upon that. And all these things kind of came together, but it was after the fact. We made the decision first. We, we made that step initially, believing that God was going to reveal things to us along the way. That's a part of what the testing is about. It's God saying, you don't have all the details, but will you entrust yourself to me? Will you let your plan be defined by who I am and what I'm asking you to do, even if it doesn't make sense? Will you step out in obedience and faith, believing in me? One of the reformers put it like this. This is such an important thing for us that we need to imitate the way of Abraham, that we need to leave things in the hands of God. And he says, we pay God the highest honor when in matters of perplexity, we entrust ourselves to his providence. When we're going through a situation where we're saying, we don't really know how this is going to play out, but we pay God the highest honor when we say, we don't have the details, but we believe in God. And so we're going to do what we feel the next step is that he's asking us to do. God is testing us. And I would say it like this. I believe the last 12 months in many ways have been a testing period for us. That what God is doing in the midst of the pandemic, he's not up there wringing his hands like, oh man, I can't believe this is going down. Oh, I can't figure out how to solve these issues, these social issues. I can't figure out how to get things back on track. No, I believe that God in all of this is walking us through a testing period where certain things about us are coming to the surface. What do we most care about? What do we lose sleep over? What do we most cherish? And, and when, when life is kind of chaotic like this and uncertain, what is it that we deeply feel and care about? So God tests his servants. The second thing we see here is this call to worship. It's a call to sacrifice. So look at verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. He's saying, I want you to sacrifice your child. Now, the truth is, we read this story and most of us experience cultural whiplash. We read it as Westerners, as Americans, as individuals, and we see this story and we go, man, this is, this is offensive to me. That God would even make a request like this feels off-putting to me. And I think a part of the problem is how remote we are from that first century, from the ancient Near East. I think that there are some things here that are helpful. I'll point them out in the text. But I also just think they, they were living in a different scenario. And so even the language that's being used here would have been heard in a different way. Um, God was asking Abraham not to execute his child. He was asking him to worship. That's a big difference. He was saying, will you sacrifice, but that term is a worship term, will you sacrifice your son to me? And they understood it to be an experience of worship. Let me just say it to you like this. Let me ask this question. If I said to you, hey guys, can you please help me build an altar? I went on YouTube, I was looking for DIY videos on building an altar for a burnt offering. I couldn't find any. So could, could you help me? Could you explain to me how to build an altar? And all of us would say, uh, I have no idea. I've never built an altar before. But in the ancient Near East, this was, just, this was a normal cultural practice. He didn't have to pull out YouTube to figure out how to build an altar. When God said, sacrifice your son to me on an altar, he just knew this is what we do. We build these altars and we worship. 
And so there was no hesitancy there. He saw this as an experience of worship. Look at verse 5. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkeys while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. We will worship. This is what we're doing. God is asking us to worship. We're going to go over there, we're going to worship, and then we're going to return to you. In verse 6, it tells us Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He understood this to be an expression of worship. It's a burnt offering. So again, I ask the question, what do you, what do you offer up in a burnt offering? Because we, you know, we don't understand this very well, so what, what would a normal thing be to offer up in, in the burnt offering? Well, the normal thing would be the first, the first and the best. The first of what, your first fruits, your, your, the firstborn, the best lamb that you have, you offer up to God something that to you feels important, that to you feels significant. You offer God an expression of worship in this way. And so here's the question that I think is really being posed to us today. Are you willing to entrust to God what you believe to be the most valuable thing to you? Are you willing to entrust that to him and to say, God, I worship you even with the things that are most dear to me. I put it in your hands. I put it on your altar. I entrust it to you because I worship you. Tim Keller, the, the um, founding pastor of Redeemer Church in New York, he, he talks about his experience with New Yorkers, and I don't think it's unique to them, but a lot of New Yorkers would say to him, if I follow your God, do I have to give up fill in the blank? You can imagine the sorts of things. If I follow your God, do I have to, you know, let's say I work um, on Wall Street, do I have to give up unethical trading? If I follow your God in my vocation, do I have to give up opportunities that maybe would put me in questionable situations? If I follow your God, do I have to give up the things that I cherish? If I follow your God, what sacrifices do I have to make? And Keller, I think, rightly notes, he says, whatever it is that feels to be your non-negotiable, the thing that you're not willing to consider allowing God to tamper with, the thing that you don't permit him access to, you say, God, I'll follow you as long as you don't mess with this. Whatever that is, Keller says, that's your real God. That's the thing that you cherish. That's the thing that you worship. If you're saying, I'll follow you, God, as long as you really let me pursue the thing that I really want, that's your God. See, the testing reveals what we really care about. And the sacrifice is an invitation to say, will you give that over to God? Will you entrust God with those things that you feel like you can't live without? See, God was saying, will you take your son, the one whom you love, Isaac, the promised child, will you take that son and place him on the altar? See, God is asking us if we are willing to worship in that way. And he's asking us to sacrifice I think it's significant. Um, the, the ministry that I was doing before coming on staff at Central as the youth pastor and then as the campus pastor, uh, the, the ministry that I was doing, it was an action sports ministry. It was called Operation 12, and it was based off of Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, it talks about the church being made up of a body. It's a body with all these different parts, and every part has a different responsibility and opportunity, and so we named this sports ministry Operation 12. What we wanted to see was that people would use their God-given gifts and talents and passions 
and they would use it however they felt like would best advance the gospel. And so for skateboarders and snowboarders, we wanted to use our participation in those sports as a way to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. So Operation 12, every member of the church on mission, every, every member doing ministry. And that was a big part of what we were about. But Romans 12 actually starts this way. And this became the, the theme verse for our entire ministry. Romans chapter 12, and I'll quote it from the older NIV version, but it, it goes like this. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The beginning of Romans 12 is saying, here's what worship is. Here's the mental picture. You build your altar to God. You get the firewood ready. You get it all set up and you crawl on top. And you say, okay, God, I am entrusting myself to you entirely. Whatever you want to resurrect from this moment, that's how I'll live. Whatever you want to do moving forward, my life is in your hands. If there are things that don't come back from this, that's fine by me. But God, my worship is to entrust myself entirely to you. You see, God here is inviting us to worship. And he's saying, will you take the thing that you're, you got a kung fu grip on right now, and will you open your hands and place it on the altar and say, okay, God, I can trust you with this, and I worship you with this. You have access to everything. I permit you access to every part of my life because I want to worship you. See, that's what I think God is doing here. He is inviting us to worship. He's not only inviting us to worship, he's providing for us. The, the story really underlines and emphasizes this point. God will provide for us. So the question comes up in the narrative, where's the sacrifice? Isaac asks it like this, verse 7, he spoke up and said to his father Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I'm looking around. I, I know what this is because we've done this before. I see all the stuff that we need to make this thing happen, except we're missing one key item, the sacrifice. I don't see it anywhere. Dad, where, where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham replies like this. He says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. There's a little play on words we, we don't see in the English, but it's basically like, I I don't see this offering, Dad. And, and Abraham says, God will see to it. I don't, I don't see how this is going to work. We don't have this key ingredient for a burnt offering. And, and Abraham is saying, God will see to it that we have everything that we need for this, son. You see, God is going to provide. And that's what faith is. In Hebrews 11, it tells us that faith is a belief in God even when we can't see it. It's believing in, it's having confidence and hope in what God is doing. It reads like this, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is a matter of faith. This provision is believing that God is going to provide for them. It's having confidence in what you hope for and assurance about what you do not see. But God is, he's going to provide and that's what Abraham believes. He believes that the Lord will provide. And he does. The Lord stops him. Look at verse 12. Do not lay your hand on your boy. 
Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. The Lord prevents him from offering up his boy in verses 13 and 14. It tells us the the reality of this. It says, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. You see, the narrative tells us the point. It tells us what the emphasis of the story is about. The emphasis is on God's ability to provide. The place is named that. The Lord will provide, and it becomes a common saying in their culture. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The, the naming of the place tells us this is what the story is about. God provides. He gives his people what they most need. The mountain isn't called by another name. We can look at the radical faith of Abraham, but the mountain is not called Abraham's radical faith. We can look at his obedience and we can think, man, that's admirable, but the mountain is not called Abraham's incredible obedience. The mountain is called the Lord will provide. And it's meant to tell us something about the nature of God and the nature of faith. When we place our faith in God, the the thing that we are entrusting ourselves to is that God himself provides for us. God gives us what we most need. Gerhardus Voss, the biblical theologian, he draws a point here. He says, look, what Abraham is doing here is comparable to a Christian's faith in the resurrection. What Abraham is doing here is comparable to what you and I would do when we're trusting in Jesus Christ in the hope of the resurrection. He's, what, what Abraham is doing is he's believing that God can intervene that he's trusting God to be able to call the things that are not as though they are. God is able to do something that is incomprehensible to us, but, but Abraham believes that to be true. God could do something here that I can't really understand, but I know it to be true. This is how Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had, who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. You see, Hebrews is telling us, the writer to the Hebrews is telling us the nature of this faith. Abraham believed that God could do something that was beyond comprehension. I'm going to believe God, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to place my faith in God, and he can resurrect the dead. I'm going to worship God as he calls me to, and I'm going to believe in his promises. This is Christianity 101. What what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you're placing your faith in the promises of God, and specifically in the promised one of God, Jesus Christ. And you're trusting him for salvation, that he lived the perfect life that none of us can, and he offered that life up as a sacrifice that he gifts us with that perfect obedience. And we receive that by faith. We place our faith in him and we receive eternal life. And, and we then believe that even though we die, yet we will live because we believe that Jesus Christ died in our place. So Christianity is recognizing this truth. God provides. 
The Lord provides. On the mountain of the Lord, he provides. He is the one who makes a way where there is no way. It's interesting that when Isaac is asking the question, he says, Dad, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Where's that lamb at that we need to be able to do this? Now, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming his way, what did he say? He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When John the Baptist saw Jesus of Nazareth, he said, this is the lamb. We, we know, in fact, Hebrews puts it in another place. It says, look, you, you know that the blood of bull and goats, it doesn't really atone for sin. It's just a picture. There's something about it where we say, look, that could never really satisfy what God demands from us. But Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the beloved son. Abraham's being asked to offer up his son, his only son, the son he loves, Isaac. But in Matthew 3, 17, God speaks from heaven over Jesus Christ, and he says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now God, in love for you and I, sent that son to be the sacrifice for us. God made a way. He provided on the mountain of the Lord, on the mountain of Calvary, God made a way for us to be saved. And and he did not spare his son. That's why Romans 8 puts it like this. He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Christianity is trusting in what God provides, and specifically, it's trusting in the promised son, Jesus Christ. It's believing that God gave his son for us so that we could be saved. Now, when that comes home to your heart, when, when you believe that to be true and you entrust yourself to God by faith in Jesus Christ, you experience salvation. And that experience of faith continues to transform you over and over and over again. We're being tested. We're going through a trial. What do we really care about? We're being asked if we will worship God, if we will entrust ourselves completely to him. And we're being reminded that God gives us everything that we need. The Lord provides. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help each and every one of us, those who are here in person and those who are watching online. Would you help us to believe in the good news of the gospel that you did not spare your son? but you gave him for us. And therefore, will you not also along with him graciously give us all things? On the mountain of the Lord, you provide. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he's done. I pray for everyone in here and everyone who can hear my voice that we would all entrust ourselves entirely to him. Help us to do that, please, in his name. Amen.